What is up people, welcome to a new episode of Kickoff Sessions. This episode I'm going to get into all of the details on how you can boost your sales. But before we get into that, a little backstory. So my name is Darren Lee and on Kickoff Sessions we discuss everything about online business and career advice for young professionals. This episode is with Nancy Harhut. Nancy's entire background has all been around how to optimize sales and really bring people through that funnel, but a different perspective, not your usual sales approach. She uses behavioral science to actually influence her marketing, which brings in additional sales. This can be through conversions on websites, conversions on products, features, social media, how to utilize and actually optimize different funnels and different sales funnels to boost your sales and improve your overall marketing. Nancy is a super, super interesting character and her latest book, Using Behavioral Science to Improve Your Marketing, has now been recently released. You can see all the details down below in the show notes. She joined Kickoff Sessions this week to get into all of the details on the hooks, the colors, the, all the different behavioral science elements that we use as consumers and we use as sellers to be able to hook people into our products and services, make them more interested and more enthralled in the actual feature. This is a very fascinating conversation because with a lot of good marketing from copywriting to any aspect of sales, you always see the end product but don't see the input values. That's what this podcast looks to resolve. We get into the details on how you can do this on an individual basis, not even on a company basis. So we walk through this whole pattern and we look at it from a behavioral science perspective. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star rating down below on Spotify, as well as sharing this episode towards Instagram, tagging myself, DarrenLee.ks. It's hugely, hugely appreciative. You can also watch the full HD version on YouTube too. Feel free to subscribe on YouTube too. We always try to push YouTube podcasts as well. So I'll leave it right here. Here's my conversation with Nancy Harrod on how to use behavioral science to improve your sales, marketing, and every aspect of your business. Nancy, let's kick off. Firstly, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. As we were t- chatting beforehand, I feel behavioral science is just really kind of kicking into the average day marketer or someone who's trying to grow their sales or someone who's trying to build a business and seeing some of the work you've written has been has been fantastic. So I'm excited to get into all the behavioral science element of it and see what are the triggers happening for the the average consumer, average user uh, when, they, when they're going to buy something or when they're going to research something. That, that sounds great, Darren. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Of course, of course. Before we get going, I want to kind of ask you about like, why is it you do what you do? So behavioral science, even your book, why, do you go, why did you get on that path and, and why is it you do what you do? Sure. So um, I'm the co-founder and chief creative officer of um, a boutique agency called uh, HBT Marketing. HBT stands for Human Behavior Triggers. And uh, as you might guess by the name, uh, we specialize in applying behavioral science to marketing best practices uh, in order to give our clients, say, an extra advantage in terms of getting the response they're looking for. But I started my career in, in copywriting and I came up through uh, the agency world um, and, uh, you know, finally got to the point where it seemed to be time to hang out my own shingle to start my own place. And so that's what I did. But I've always been interested in behavioral science ever since reading Robert Cialdini's book, um, Influence Science, uh, Influence the Science of Persuasion. And I found the book fascinating. I, I found myself writing margin notes and underlining passages and really thinking about the particular client challenges I was working with at the time and thinking, okay, this could work and that could work. And I began to start to test them. And when I saw that they were working, that just sent me down the rabbit hole. And I tried to learn as much as I possibly could, read other authors, work with different behavioral scientists or, or, or cognitive scientists, and um, you know, saw 
uh, myself how well these techniques work, how well these tactics work, and uh, just became a convert. Mm. What were some of the kind of patterns you suppose you'd see, like someone that would re- replay itself in terms of consumers, like when they interact with a product or when they're looking to, you know, review something? What are some of the kind of behavioral triggers you're kind of analyzing? So, uh, th- you know, there were there were a number of them. I think I've I've got 17 chapters in the book, and I t- probably talk about. 25 or more that are my go-to ones that I've, I've found really have a tendency to uh, to be helpful for a marketer. But, you know, a couple of them, you know, one is when people aren't certain of uh, what decision to make, they look around, they see what other people are doing, they follow those other people. Uh, behavioral t- scientists call that social proof. And the funny thing is, you know, as a consumer, we're not really sure what to do. We look to see what other people are doing. We don't think that they're just as lost as we are, that they're just as uncertain as we are. We assume they know something that we don't. And I find Mm -hmm. that very interesting. And and it's why, you know, ratings and reviews and testimonials work so well, or, you know, saying this is our most popular product or our fastest growing product, because, uh, you know, when people aren't sure what to do, those are the things that they look for. But then uh, the flip side of that is, there are times when people don't want to follow the crowd. They don't want to be buying the thing everyone else is buying. That you know, they want to be the first one to uncover something. They want to have something that not everyone else has access to, or that people can't get just yet. So they're really more about scarcity and exclusivity. So for them, you know, saying, "Hey, you know, all these people love this." that's not going to work as well for them. It's the idea that this is new, uh, only available to certain people, only you know, limited supplies. Uh, you know, this is information that not everyone else knows. There are mm-hmm. some people that respond really, really well to that. So, uh, so those are two kind of two halves of the same coin, or two, you know, two uh, opposite principles that can work very well for a marketer. You just have to uh, a- apply them properly, find the right instances, know who your target audience is, and and know which of those two uh, to deploy. Or, well, like mm-hmm. I said, there's many others as well, but those are the two I'm talking about right now. Yeah. That's crazy. So like there's it's it's kind of weird because like it feeds into our personalities. Like some people need that kind of herd mentality of social proof. Like I need to go with the status quo or I need to follow it. And then some people then are kind of completely independent thinker, thinkers. They want to be kind of first in class. They want to trial something, you know. So like it's kind of weird how we frame things and how we've been able to identify which users to, to zone into. So like looking at social proof, like what is it? users are trying to find is it they're trying to find let's say people that fit into their kind of uh their thinking process and how they kind of uh, frame it because they're trying to see it in a certain way certain features and certain reviews so well it's interesting you know i think it's it's the difference between status quo and status like what are you what are you seeking are you are you Mm. seeking status quo or are you seeking status like i want to feel special i want to feel exclusive and i think if you're seeking status quo if you're looking at uh, you know, uh, social proof and lots of other people doing the same thing. What you're really trying to find is reassurance or safety. It's like, I'm not going to make a mistake. I'm not going to spend money that I'm going to regret, regret. I'm not going to uh, buy something that's going to make me the laughing stock of, of my friends or of my company. I'm not going to get into trouble making this, you know, making this purchase, making this decision. And I think that's where social proof or, or status quo bias, you know, comes in. Status quo bias, excuse me, status quo bias is a little different. It's just the, the preference for what we actually are currently doing and, and the reluctance to try something new. Um, but the idea of social proof is that, you know, everyone else is, is doing this, therefore I, I can do it. And I think when that's at play, it's it's safety that people are looking for. It's like, uh, you know, I want to make sure I'm making a good decision. You know, I'm uncertain. I either don't know the category or I've never had to make this purchase before. And mm-hmm. I just want to know that other people have done it because if other people have done it, 
uh, I can be reasonably certain, particularly if they're people like me, that I'll be happy too. And I, I kind of learn from, you know, uh, from their taking the, the, the risk, if you will. Mm-hmm. What I see online as well around this is that like some reviews or some people look at testimonials, they're looking for like a transformation. So let's say I was doing Nancy's course on behavioral science. If I'm going from point A to point B and I have a transformation effect as well as that, you know, I save time or generate money or generate leads for my business. Is there a certain way that the testimonials should be written? They should be constructed for the social proof? Yeah, that, well, there's uh, two two things that I advise to my clients. One is you want the testimonial giver to be as close to the testimonial receiver as possible. So if you're, you know, if you're targeting CFOs, have your testimonial come from a CFO. If you're targeting young moms, have your testimonial come from a young mom. Uh, you know, the, the closer the uh, the giver and the receiver are, the, the better off you are as the marketer because, you know, we're influenced by what people do, particularly people like ourselves. And then the other really good advice is a lot of times marketers think I want to find the absolute best testimonials. You know, I want these glowing testimonials. I want customers who say that they absolutely love my product. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But if you can find a testimonial where the person starts at a point of skepticism, they say, you know, I I wasn't really sure it would be worth the price. Or, Mm. you know, I used to think that, you know, all of these marketing courses were pretty interchangeable, pretty much the same, you know, and I've taken a few before, but then I took this one, you know, or I, you know, I, I was skeptical about the price, but I decided to give it a try. Oh my goodness, was it worth it? So if you can start where the reader likely is, which is that, you know, indecision that, you know, they've got some questions, they're wondering, they're not really sure. You know, when the reader sees that, they're like, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was wondering if it was worth the price. I I was wondering if there was really any difference between one or another. This person felt the same way I did, but they've actually uncovered the truth. And now I can too. So, uh, Mm. you know, now I can feel safe making that decision. So I always say to, um, to my clients, like, let's go through your testimonials. And if we can, if we can find one where somebody wasn't entirely on board at first and now they are that's even stronger than someone who just comes right out of the gate saying this is fabulous i love it mm, that's fascinating that's fascinating because people just think that getting at a testimonial is sufficient but it's obviously the way it's engineered and, and speaks to the speaks to the next like icp your ideal customer profile is there um kind of like a template that you'd kind of recommend or a way to reach out to let's say your existing customers to get these types of you know, good, you know, testimonials and reviews? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's always good to ask uh, shortly after they've made a a buying decision, because that's when you're fresh in their mind. And, and there's kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the honeymoon effect, you know, they're never going to be happier than when they've, when they first made the the purchase. So timing Mm -hmm. is part of it. And then, you know, we, we can't put words into their mouths, but what we can do is we can ask some questions, you know, well, what were you looking for? What were you thinking? Uh, how did you go about making the decision? What were you worried about uh, leading up to making it? You know, was there anything you were uncertain about? Uh, you know, what, what were the, the three main drivers? You know, instead of just saying, could you give me a testimonial? Try to ask some questions that get them thinking and that will maybe produce the, you know, the things that you're looking for. Well, I, you know, this was my, you know, my expectation going in or this is what I thought going in. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to feed them information. Uh, I find that, you know, the the most natural conversational language is the best, uh, mm-hmm. but also the more specific they can be, the, the better off it is. So, you know, uh, as opposed to saying, you know, did you like our product? You know, what did you like about our product? You know, trying to get to those specifics. But those are a few ways to to try to elicit that um, 
you know, that, that really golden nugget of a testimonial. Mm-hmm. And what I find interesting with this as well is that like, it's kind of like, where do you show this to your users? So like, you know, what I work on outside of my podcast is like product work and we're always focused on, let's say either web or mobile design. I preferably kind of work on mobile, but I have experience with web as well. Like for me, there's so much like vital real estate on a website. There's your landing page, there's your features, there's your benefits, there's your pricing and whatnot. Where would you put your testimonials to have highest impact? So uh, that's a really good question. Uh, and I definitely would try to get one on the landing page that, you know, that would be for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And then when it comes to the website, um, you know, I'm a big fan of some advice that um, a marketer named Andy Crestadina out of Chicago often gives. And what he says is it's a mistake to have a page of testimonials on your website. What you want to do is you want to intersperse them throughout the site because people are consuming the information and they'll come upon the testimonials as opposed to just, you know, kind of aggregating them on one certain page where people may or may not go. So uh, he's a big fan mm-hmm. of kind of, you know, interspersing them here and there. And I think that makes a lot of sense because you have the greater likelihood of, of people encountering them. You have the opportunity to place them so that they're contextually relevant. You know, if you're talking about um, customer service, you know, for example, you have one, you know, that speaks to customer service. If you're, you know, if on your pricing page, maybe you have one that talks about what a really good deal this is, you know, so, um, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm a big fan of doing it that way. Yeah, that's that's interesting because a lot of people will kind of throw it into like a horizontal scro- scroller or a vertical scroller or something like that, or, you know, even a designated page, as you recommended, which is probably not the best thing from a UI UX perspective. So it's weird because as you mentioned, it's like users attach a certain association with support, customer support, or let's say the benefits or whatnot, and they're trying to see those those relationships. Um that's kind of mad. I know you wrote a lot as well about um, keywords and kind of specific, specific, you know, oversight of particular words and others. How would that kind of, um, how do you think about that? Is there certain ways that we should kind of promote certain words and leave other aspects kind of less as a copywriter as well? Yeah. So um, there are definitely some words that I refer to as I magnet words, and and I call them I magnet words because they literally have the power to leap off the screen or off the mm-hmm. printed page either way and attract the eye like a magnet. Because when you think about it, when, when people read, they skim and they scan. And then if something catches their attention, then they go in and they more fully consume the content. And so what we want to do is we want to increase the likelihood that something will catch their attention and they'll go in and they'll fully consume the content. And so what we want to do is we want to use some of these eye magnet words, these words that are proven to attract the eye. And we want to put them in high read pieces of real estate, like your content title or your headline or your subject line. So, or your, the, the, you know, the, you know, if you're offline, maybe the, you know, what you have on the outside of the mailer, you know, but you want to, you want to put it in a high read piece of real estate. So that's going to do the most good for you. And so some of the words revolve around novelty. So you have new, now, introducing, announcing, finally, soon. If you're looking for a verb, you go with discover. And the reason these work so well is the human brain is, is hardwired to seek out the new and novel. We're hardwired to seek out the new and novel because when we find something that we think is new, it activates uh, the reward center, the pleasure center in our brain. Uh, the brain releases dopamine. That's a feel-good chemical. And as a result, we feel good. So we're constantly jonesing for that next hit of dopamine. We're constantly looking for the next new thing. So when we when we are skimming and scanning, we see introducing, announcing, new, now, finally, soon, discover, like, oh, okay, there's something new here. Mm. So it, it attracts us. Um, and I always say use discover or see or find out 
before you use the word learn. And a lot of times we, you know, as marketers, like, oh, you'll learn this, learn this, learn this. And the problem with learn is it sounds like work. Discover sounds like fun. You're going to find something new. Learn, you know, you're back in you know, second grade math class and you really want to be out at recess, but you're stuck doing your math problems. Learning is work, you know, it's arduous. Mm. So I, I recommend that we avoid that, but we focus on some of these words that are more about, you know, news and, and novelty. And then the other great word that I recommend uh, we really uh, amp up is the word you. As a matter of fact, copyblogger lists you as one of the top five most persuasive words in the English language. And, and the reason for this is people are more interested in themselves than in anyone else. So in marketing, very often we fall into this, our company, our product, I, we, and, and the I just goes right over that. We're talking about skimming and scanning and, you know, the I just kind of goes right by that. But when we see the word you, it jumps out at us because you refers to us and we're more interested in ourselves than anyone else. It's why personalization works so well. If, you know, if I could say Darren, so much the better, but mm -hmm. I can't always. So a great substitute is the word you, as we're skimming and scanning, we see that word you, we go right to it. So uh, those are, those are a, a few of the words that, uh, that I recommend free is also another really great one. We're, um, mm -hmm. uh, we're so attracted to the word free that it, it, it produces this emotional charge in us when we see it and we, we gravitate towards things that are free uh, World Data ran a study with subject lines, and they found that free in a subject line gets you twice the opens as the word complimentary. So not only is it shorter and saves character space, but it's actually twice as powerful. And I know a lot of marketers think, oh, you know, complimentary sounds a little classier, right? A little yeah. nicer and, and free. Ooh, I don't, you know. Um, and then, of course, there was a time when free would, you know, trigger the spam filters, although that's not the case anymore. Um, but free can be incredibly powerful. And uh, so that's another word that I, uh, you know, that I recommend. That's that's literally fascinating, like, because there's so much elements there, especially the learn. The learn one is the funniest because it's like we always want things without having to put the effort in. And it's like, oh, the discover is the treasure chest analogy. It's just like, oh, we're opening up a treasure chest. We can get any sort of prize, good or bad. Whereas learn insinuates that you will get a transformation, which could be positive, but you're not willing to put in the effort. And it's just the framing approach and how to how to segment this is crazy. Um, when you speak directly to a to a user, do you not kind of like um, infer the overall? Let's say, let's say like. Um, category let's say so let's say if you're selling baby products and you're selling to to a mother would you say here we're helping busy mothers or would you say we help you alleviate stress as a, as a busy mother like how does that work let's say in terms of speaking directly to the consumer that's a good question you know what i would do is i, I would change it up i mean um we know that you is a very powerful word, but we also know that uh, we need people to self-select when they're reading our content. And is there yeah. skimming and scanning? You know, if, if you if the headline happened to say busy mothers, well, you'd be like, oh, well, that's me, you know, so that could mm. pull somebody in. And then maybe, you know, maybe you alternate, you, you use some of the word, you know, use you, but then sometimes you refer to busy mothers. Um, so I, I would kind of mix it up. I, I, you is very, very powerful. Uh, but in a headline, you know, maybe we want, you know, if we're trying to get people to self-select, if it's a piece of content, for example, now if it's a targeted ad, or if it's a if it's an email where we know who we're writing to, um, then you know maybe we want to lead with the with the word you. I think it really depends on the context. Of course, of course. So the free element is is huge, and I know you wrote about you know giving more than than or giving more than you get, and I think that's very interesting in this modern day area of like social media, whereby we can create content for other people. So you know 
for my podcast agency, I write on LinkedIn every single day. I've wrote on LinkedIn every day for the last like year. And I'm kind of continuously giving more to users from you, from your perspective, where should that kind of happen? Does that happen from, let's say a social media platform perspective, or maybe from websites as well as like uh, checklists, you know, free tutorials and whatnot like this. So all of those things are good. This, this whole idea of giving to get is based in, a behavioral science principle called reciprocity. And what the behavioral scientists have found is when, when you get something from someone, whether or not you ask for it, but when you get something for, from someone, you now feel indebted to them, right? You, you feel like you want to return the favor. You feel like now you owe them something and you want to even the score. So, uh, so for marketers, what it means is being the first to give. And that could be a series of how-to videos. It could be, you know, information in a, in a blog. It could be eBooks. It could be free samples. It could be, you know, starter packs, uh, you know, it could be a free gift. There are many, many different things that we can do. It could be free advice. Um, but if we're the first to give and, uh, and, and, you know, people get something out of it, they, they get, you know, some advantage, some benefit, then they feel like, all right, now I want to return the favor. There was an interesting study that was done by a Brigham Young University um, professor, his name was Philip Kuntz, and he sent Christmas cards to random strangers, just people he didn't know, he just pulled their names out of a phone book, sent them Christmas cards, over 20% of the people sent him a card back. So can you imagine, you know, you uh, you get this Christmas card and you're like, you know, honey, do you know Phil Coots? No, I don't know. Yeah, neither do I. But well, all right, we better send them a card back. And not only would they send them a card back, they would put a little note in it. They would update about the family and they continued to send cards for years afterwards. It, it was really very interesting. But that's how people are. We're very civil. You know, it's like, oh, somebody sent me a card. I have to send them a card. Uh Somebody uh, picked up the lunch bill when we went out for lunch. I have to buy them lunch the next time. You know, somebody remembered mm. my birthday. I've <laughs> got to remember their birthday. You know, that's, you know, that's how we're, that's how we're hardwired. And uh, you had mentioned earlier that you did some work in the uh, financial space when we were talking uh, earlier before the uh, the show. And uh, I have an interesting example about the reciprocity principle in the financial space. It was a, a large client and they had um, financial advisors who had stopped selling their funds, and they wanted to reactivate these financial advisors. And these financial advisors had stopped selling the funds over a year ago. And so what we ended up doing is we sent them an email and we said, uh, watch your mail because we've picked out a gift especially for you. And then a few days later in the in the USPS mail, a box arrived. And in the box was a framed New Yorker cartoon. And the cartoon was about uh, somebody selling retirement services, you know, some financially themed um topic. And in the caption was the individual financial advisor's name. So the caption would have had your name, Darren, for the one that you received. It would have my name for the one that I received. And it so it was a really nice New Yorker cartoon. It was funny. Your name was in the caption. It was framed. And um, there was also a letter from the wholesaler saying, hey, you know, we haven't spoken in a while. would love to catch up, let you know what we're up to, like to find out what you're up to, you know, short and sweet, you know, just saying, hey, we'd like to talk. They ended up generating $68 million in incremental revenue because of that promotion, right? You, you get the, the frame cartoon. Oh, it's really, this is pretty cool. I'm going to hang it on my office wall. Now you're looking at it all the time. And then you start to feel like, oh, you know, maybe I should send them some business. First, they're top of mind. But second, and I think arguably more importantly, 
you're feeling a little indebted. Uh, you're, you're feeling mm. like, gee, they sent me this. I should, I should do something. And uh, and then can you imagine if the wholesaler called the, the financial advisor? Normally, the financial advisor might want to dodge the call, right? No, no, I'm not here. I'm not going to answer. But it's like, how can I do that? They, I'm looking at the gift they sent me. You know, so it's it's really interesting. It's also why those um, address labels in charity solicitations do so well. Uh, you know, different charity, a cancer charity, or a you know, a children's disease charity, or a uh, save the uh, you know the animals charity. They'll they'll send you a um, you know a letter in the mail, and they'll have these address labels, and they'll be asking you for a donation. And so, on one hand, you've got this letter asking for a donation. On the other hand, you've got these address labels that you didn't ask for, but yet you feel like okay, mm-hmm. I should I should send them something. And that's why they do so well. Like they the charities just haven't stopped sending them because they do so well. So the the idea of giving to get or reciprocity is really, really very powerful. And, uh, you know, so circling back, it could be videos, it could be information, it could be a consultation, it could be a, a free gift, it could be a, a, a sample of something, but uh, it, it really does prompt people to say, you know what, I want to return the favor. Mm, that That's crazy, because I would not have thought it goes as deep down the funnel as that. We kind of think top of funnel mind, that's kind of where our brains kind of get stuck. And we're like, oh, we contacted a person, we sent them a you know, a checklist or whatnot and haven't got back to us. So therefore they may not want us, but it's kind of like if you keep up that relationship or at least if in a, in a normal sense, now in a 21st century sense, if you keep providing value in some way from YouTube videos like this or, or, or whatnot, does that make sense? There's, there's always something that you can kind of be doing to kind of keep up those relationships. Uh, and to your point, you end up being top of mind, which is something that people don't try get to because it's noisy, isn't it? Like the whole world is noisy at the moment and, and and everyone is fighting for everyone's attention. So yeah, it is. It's very, very hard to capture people's attention. But if you're if you're providing something that they find useful and, and relevant or enjoyable or entertaining, that you know, that mm-hmm. can really help. And you know, uh, you know, sometimes when you when you give something, you get the return relatively quickly. Other times it may take a while, but people still feel like, all right, I, I owe them something. They're the ones that I want to even the score with. And and even if it takes a little while, people will get to it. So uh, having that information out there can be can be really helpful. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I was smiling there because um, for my agency, I run obviously discovery calls at first. You know, you, anyone can hop on a call and we can discuss your criteria. Usually what I do is scope out exactly what the project looks like in 30 minutes. They're all largely the same. So I could scope out exactly what it looks like for a user. And the, the reason why is, and this is a kind of an agency approach, is that the user would leave and say, well, I got all of this information for free. I can technically go do it myself. I wonder what I could do if I had this person as, as a, as a, as a customer. Does that make sense? Like they're always kind of like, you're just providing as much free value as possible. And that's why I'm such an avid user of social media. And again, it's not the short term benefits. It's the long term benefits. You're, you're playing the long game and it's, it's, it's a, it tributes to life. Doesn't it? That when you extrapolate into the future, you don't get too caught up on short term thinking. Uh, this comes back to benefit you. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and now I think you're right. I think sometimes, you know, you give people some information and they think, uh, oh, great, I can go do it myself. And, you know, and, and maybe they can, and maybe they'll have some marginal success, but how much better would it be if, if I had an expert doing it? And how much easier would it be if I had an expert doing it? Because I have all this exactly. other stuff to do, right? And then I haven't done this before. And um, so, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a that's a smart play. And And then, you know, the other thing we can do when we're Uh, triggering the reciprocity principle is we can say, hey, look, there's no obligation. And the truth of the matter is that makes the, um, you know, the offer that much more 
attractive because we're saying, look, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a no obligation review, or it's a no obligation audit, it's a no obligation call, whatever. And so we go, oh, that's great. But then they still, because of the reciprocity principle, do feel like they want to return the favor. Even though you've mm-hmm. said you don't have to, you know, people are still, you know, it's it's kind of hardwired into us. And it goes all the way back to our, our ancient ancestors where the human race wouldn't have survived if we didn't learn to cooperate, if we didn't learn to, uh, you know, have a little bit of give and take with with each other. And so it's really hardwired. It's, it's you know, it's it's in our genes, it's in our DNA. And as a result, we can trigger it as marketers, even by saying, you don't need to return the favor, you know, there's no obligation, this is absolutely free. People will say that's great and that will attract them to the initial offer. But then later it's like, well, they're the guy that, you know, they're, they're the guys that helped me or they're the company that that helped me or that's where I found this information. And, you know, it was really good. It'd probably be even better if I work with them. That's that's actually fascinating. It's so interesting to see. On the flip side to that, you have an element or an urgency and creating, you know, a sense of like, scarcity. So well, that's the opposite to there's no obligation. Um, how do you generate scarcity in a way that is let's say you know looks kind of realistic it's not kind of fake gimmicks and and sliders on screen yeah yeah i mean i think we want to be authentic and we want to be legitimate you know with this so you know the idea of scarcity is um you know, if something's widely available, we may or may not be interested in it. If we're interested, we take advantage of it. If we're not, we don't, right? No big deal. But when people find out that something is scarce, it's only available for a certain time or in limited quantities, or it's only available to some people, but not to everyone, that can be a game changer. Suddenly they want that thing, you know, maybe they were like neutral about it before, but now when they find out that there's not a lot of them or that not everyone can get one, we, well, we value that. We value scarcity, and that makes us really want something. So it can be tempting for a marketer to say, ah, oh, this is great. This will get people you know, motivated. This will get them off the dime. This will get them to respond. But we have to be ethical about the way we use these things. We have to be responsible because if we keep saying, you know, there's only three left and then tomorrow there's only three left and then the next day there's only three left, uh, eventually our customers catch on. And what happens is that erodes the the brand trust. And you might have that short-term win, but in the long-term you lose out. So, but the other side of that is if you can use scarcity to be gen- to be genuinely helpful, then that's a good thing. If somebody is interested in a particular product or service and you can say, there's only three of these left, or we're only uh, accepting another 10 people into the program, or this is going to expire at a, at a certain date. That's genuinely helpful information because, you know, if the person goes back and there's none left, they'd be like, look, I, you know, why didn't you tell me that there are only three available? Why, you know, so mm. we can, we can use scarcity to motivate people to, to make a decision, to help them make the decision they want to make before they get disappointed. But we just have to be careful that we don't try to overuse it or, or use it, um, you know, uh, maliciously, I guess you could say, you know, irresponsibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause there, there's a very thin line there, isn't there? That sometimes it looks authentic. Sometimes you click onto, you know, a broken e-commerce website and you see that it's, it's, it's clearly false. You can get a plugin for it, whatnot. So there's kind of that element that maybe buyers are a little bit more uh, aware that maybe some of this is, is in circulation. So it's trying to be, kind of identify it and make sure that users are treated fairly, but also you're, you're creating that level of urgency. Do you do this kind of by, let's say, like messaging on, on, on websites or through your email or whatnot? Like how would you kind of create the message overall? Yeah, so there, I mean, there are a few ways to do it. Um, you know, I've sent out emails where I've said, uh, 
you know, not, not everyone is getting this, but because you're a member of such and such a group, you're eligible for it. So that's like a nice use of, of um, scarcity and exclusivity. You know, it's like, all right, well, that's pretty good. You know, like it's not available to the general public, but because I belong to this particular association, I can get this. Or I've, I've sent other emails out that said, um, you know, we're, we're selling some educational programming, but it's not going to be in your area again for, you know, another three or four months. So if you're interested, now is the time to take advantage of it. Otherwise, you're you're going to have to wait. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've sent other messages where I've made the argument for something, the sales argument for something and said, um, you know, we'd love to hear from you now. I can't guarantee that you'll receive another message like this, you know, which is true, because sometimes people think, oh, you know, yes, I should buy <laughs> this, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get it next time. And the truth of the matter is, you know, may, maybe they'll get another marketing message, another email or, or what, but maybe they won't, you know, so being honest and saying, I can't guarantee, you know, I don't know if you'll receive another one. You know, mm-hmm. you might want to do it now. So there are there are ways to do it that are genuine and authentic and honest, but also very motivating. Makes sense. Makes sense. It's just about trying to, I suppose, devise your ideal customer profile and see like how you're actually speaking to them directly versus just having arbitrary terms, I suppose, and just having things that are not uh, as vague. I wanted to get into uh, some of the ideas around storytelling because I know you mentioned it previously as well about how kind of how this can kind of appear. Um. I've actually had a lot of podcasts on storytelling. I've had a couple of kind of experts in this field as well. Um, how important is it, I suppose, for founders and and entrepreneurs and even marketers to tell that transformation story of the of why we're here and why why we're doing anything? I think it can be very important because it um, you know it, it it helps bring to life who they are and and why their company exists. And, you know, the human brain is hardwired to respond to stories. We use stories to make sense of the world. And so when, when we hear a story or, or when we read a story, uh, our, more of our brain gets involved, right? So if we're just dealing with facts and figures, if a, if a founder is just kind of rattling off, you know, here are the facts, here are the numbers, um, you know, I mean, that's fine. That's conveying information. And that activates two areas of the brain, Broca's area and Wernicke's area, the, the two areas that are responsible for processing language. But when a story is told, other parts of the brain get involved. You know, if you're using action words, your motor cortex gets involved. You know, if you're if you're using sensory words, maybe your your olfactory uh, cortex gets involved. Maybe, you know, you were talking about the smell of freshly brewed coffee, you know. Um, but the more parts of your brain that get involved, the better you understand the information and the longer you retain it. So if you're a marketer, those are two big wins because you want people to understand your information and you absolutely want them to remember it. So stories can work really well in that respect. And, you know, you're trying to differentiate yourself from your competition. Your story is unique. Your founding story is unique or your transformational story is unique. And so it's it's the thing that you know, people hang their hat on the thing that they remember. It's like, oh yeah, right. The, uh, um, I don't you know, post-it notes were, were discovered because the inventor was trying to invent something else. And it was a failed product until his colleague started to use it to mark songs in his hymnal because he was a choir director. And then suddenly we realized, wow, there's a, you know, there's a whole new product here in this repositional uh, adhesive, but they were trying to, to solve another problem. And this didn't solve that problem, but it created a whole new market. So, you know, you hear that story and you're like, oh my gosh, what an interesting story. Or, you know, there's a, there's a company here in Massachusetts. It it was started by two guys selling t-shirts out of their van. And now it's this huge company and they're all about social good. 
It's called Life as Good, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, so you, you hear these stories, and you're like, wow, that's really interesting. And it, it just helps you remember, and it, it helps you kind of understand, you know, why you might want to, to do business with a particular company or to buy a particular product or sign up for a particular service you know, because of the story behind it. Mm, it's a distinguishing factor, isn't it? That you could take two companies and it's, it seems kind of applicable like in the world of like tech and especially in finance, to be honest, like a lot of things are very similar, same products, same features, same look, same UX, same websites. But the only thing that distinguishes it is usually the founder's journey or some sort of stories or the company, how they reposition themselves or whatnot. And I don't think people talk that up as much. So like, I know you mentioned some elements of why people want to hear certain parts of the story, but from a behavioral science perspective, is there certain things that people like to cling on to from stories? Like that goes back to generations in terms of they want to know more about a company and why it's there. Well, there's, there's a few things. I mean, storytelling, you're absolutely right, goes back for generations. It was around before the written word. It was how information was passed from generation to generation before the written word. So Crazy. so people just instinctively love stories. And um, the other wonderful thing about stories is when someone's listening to a story, they draw their own conclusion. And we we may argue with what someone else tells us. We may argue with what a marketer tells us. We rarely argue with our own conclusions. So there's a really famous example. It's, it's a B2C example, or, well, it could be B2B, if you, depending on how you categorize it, but it's for the Wall Street Journal. And it was a subscription letter. So this is going back some time. It was, it was offline. But they sent out this subscription letter, and it told the story of these uh, two guys who had recently uh, reconnected at their college reunion. And it turned out that they were, you know, from the same town. They went to the same school. They ended up working at the same company. And one of them was a middle manager and the other one had shot way up through the ranks. And as the story unfolds, you find out that the one who had shot way up through the ranks happened to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. So it's interesting because they never explicitly told you in this um, subscription uh, letter that the guy who shot up through the ranks, who had this really high power job, had it because he subscribed. But as as you're reading the letter, you come to the conclusion yourself. You're like, okay, there are two of them. They were very, very alike. Oh, but I see what the difference is. One of them was a Wall Street Journal subscriber and one of them wasn't. And the one who subscribed is the one who did better. And so you come to your own conclusion that subscribing to the Wall Street Journal would be a smart move for you. So it's it's really interesting the, the effect that stories can have. You don't have to be particularly heavy handed. People mm. pull out of them, you know, what's most relevant for them. They, they come to their own conclusion. And as I said, it's uh, it's less likely that you're going to argue with your own conclusion. Yeah, that's fascinating because I suppose you do come away with your own ideas and your own thoughts and mean you could read the same information and, ter- and interpret it slightly differently. Whereas it's not like we're telling you the facts, like your example of the CEO earlier who just lists off loads of statistics about the company and that information is often uh, objective. You could you could interpret it different ways. Um, so it is it is quite challenging to see to see how many people are kind of going down one particular path but there's other things to do as well how would you integrate that into your sales process like where do you find in for to find time for that storytelling aspect so i think there are a few different few different places uh you know we talked about the founder story the other thing is a customer success story where it's not your company or your product that's the hero it's the customer that's the hero and they become the hero because they're using your product or your service but that's what people want to hear about if, if they're trying to decide you know should I do business with you or not 
you know, well, what's it been like for other people, those people like me, it, you know, goes back a little bit to social proof. But, you know, if, if I could hear the story of someone similar to me wrestling with a similar challenge who succeeded because they did business with you, that's going to really resonate with me. So I think customer success stories are, are great examples. Um, even stories about how a product or service could be used that are maybe a little less common. You know, it's like you, you might have a particular product or service. And you're like, okay, well, I know what that does. You know, I get it. But if there's a another way to use it, a more interesting way to use it, or a new way to use it that that uh, isn't as common, you start to tell that story. And that gives people ideas. And they're like, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Wow, you know, maybe we could use that. So I think there are a few different roles for for storytelling throughout the whole sales process. Mm, it's interesting because I suppose it's not just targeted as one particular area. You're not like saying that, oh, it's just on a landing page. We have these sales stories. You're also interacting with users when they when they need more support or when they're looking for like upsells or cross sells. There's different opportunities there for sure. They're, yeah, they're absolutely yes, and it, it could be on a web page, it could be on a landing page, it could be in an email, it could be in an ebook. There, are, you know, there are lots of different vehicles as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to chat about the consistency principle they read about, and I wanted to see kind of more about how that feeds into like loyalty of users and overall sales kind of process. But for people that don't understand, could you explain that kind of concept in more detail? Yeah, it's a really interesting concept. What behavioral scientists have found is once people make a decision or once they take a stand, they like to remain consistent with it when future opportunities arise. And generally, they do so without a lot of thought. So it's it's really a, it's a way to conserve mental energy, which, which a lot of these behavioral science techniques are, are rooted in. Um, you know, we humans uh, prefer the easy way out. We prefer things that are simple. We prefer things that don't require a lot of, of, of effort. And so this is one of those decision-making shortcuts. If I've made the decision once, I've vetted the company, I've done the research, I've thought about it, whatever, I've made the decision once, I don't have to go through that the next time that particular company comes up, you know, I, it's, it's like, all right, I already do business with them. I trust them. I like them. So if we can get someone to say yes, once we're much more likely to get them to say yes, a second time, a third time, a fourth time. And this is particularly true if the first ask that we make is relatively small. And from there, we can start to increase the, you know, the, the amount of our ask that, you know, so maybe the first thing we ask is just that they, uh, you know, like us on Facebook or, or they download a white paper, or they watch a video, and then maybe we can progress to something, you know, uh, that requires a little bit more of a commitment. Maybe we're asking to uh, do a, a product demo, you know, that that requires a little bit more of a commitment in, in terms of, of time and, and interest than just, you know, downloading a video or, or downloading a white paper, watching a video. And so you can start to increase your your asks until ultimately you get to the you know, the, the big one, which is, hey, let's do some business together. But if you can get that one first small yes you can build on it to get subsequent yeses. Because if someone says yes the first time, they're much more likely to say yes the second time, a third time, a fourth time. There was actually some research that was done in Los Angeles where um, researchers went door to door in this neighborhood in, in LA and they were asking people, how do you feel about safe driving? And, you know, most people agreed that safe driving was a good idea. And so then they said, well, how about putting up a billboard on your front lawn saying that you support safe driving? So here, as you can imagine, people are like, I don't know if I want to put up a billboard. I mean, <laughs> what are my neighbor's going to think? What's it going to do to my property value? What's it going to do to my view? Like, I don't want a billboard on my front lawn. So most people said no. 76% of the people said no. But there was a, a small group of people that said yes. Or I'm sorry, I should say only only 17% of the people said yes. But there was a small group of that 17% um, 
that uh, that overwhelmingly was like, yes, 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 we want to do this. And it turned out that the reason that they wanted to do it was previously, two weeks previously, they had agreed to display a small three inch by three inch sign saying that they supported safe driving. So because they said yes to the three inch by three inch sign, when another researcher came back a couple of weeks later and said, how about a billboard? These people were much more likely, 76% of them, much more likely to say yes to the billboard. And, and the reason was the commitment and consistency process. Because they'd said yes the first time, they felt that you know this was some something they were committed to. It was a cause that they believed in. It, it was you know reflective of their values. It was indicative of their past behavior. And so they just continued in in that way. So it can be incredibly powerful. You know, you would think to yourself, really, like, would it make that much of a difference? But it it absolutely does. We, we kind of go onto automatic pilot, and it's like, oh yeah, right, I'll do that. That's that's so crazy because if you think about how some products are upsold so let's say they start off with a, with a base and as a base we just do some small pieces of work and they're continuously being upsold it makes a lot of sense but it's it's quite interesting because like how does it work with let's say big b2b clients so let's say i'm selling you like a piece of software and it's an enterprise solution and it's going to cost you you know x amount people might you know they well they might buy it straight out right? but it might not be always the case. But then I do see in a software sense that people get on free trials and they do seven day free trials and, and nine day free trials and 10 days free trials. But I'm even trying to think about your example when you were, you know, when you were a copywriter and you're trying to sell these kind of contracts. It's interesting because people that may not buy the, the 5k or the 10k beforehand. Well, there's, there's a couple of things there, you know, before you can get to the, the purchase question, there are a lot of other smaller decisions that have to happen, right? You have to, you know, get onto the uh, the the short list of potential providers. And in order to get on the short list, maybe you have to get someone to engage with you and, and you know read your materials or maybe you have to talk to them. So there's a lot of little decisions that that escalate up to, you know, the point where you can say, now how about making the purchase decision? And so I think that's where consistency comes in. And, and you raise mm-hmm. a good point. Uh, you know, a, a free trial or a limited time trial or a, a limited functionality trial where you get some of the functionality, but not all of it, you know, those are all great ways to, uh, you know, to, to kind of work your way up to that ultimate, yes, I'd, I'd like you to, uh, you know, to do business, I'd like to buy your product or service, I want to do business with you. So, so, but you know, you can't really come right out of the gate and say, hey, buy this. Well, for some people, you can, if, if someone is absolutely looking for what you have to offer, as soon as they find out you offer it, boom, they, you know, they've solved their problem. But there's a lot of other people who could go your way or not. And for those people, you need to Kind of work up that you know that that uh, continuum of of yeses until you can finally say and now would you like to do some business and if if they've said yes along the way they're much more likely to you, you know you mentioned the the free trial um, or the you know the you know the seven day trial the the great thing about that too is it triggers something called the endowment effect where we place more value on things that we already own so once you start using the product or using the service now it feels like yours. And then the idea of losing it, of someone taking it away from you, we react against that. We're like, no, 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 you know, it, it's really painful, twice as painful actually to uh, uh, to incur a loss than to achieve a gain. And so once we, you know, once we start to use this free product or this free trial, we start to think of it as ours. And uh, and then the idea of losing it is is um, is something that we really don't want to have to deal with. It combines the idea of loss aversion and the endowment effect. So. 
Uh, so that's that's something else that factors into this notion of giving someone a free trial and getting that first yes. That's uh, that's crazy. I even had an example from today. So my CRM, I was like moving CRM to like a different one, and uh, just just seeing what, what what it was like. And I got an email today saying like, oh, like you know, like your subscription will start tomorrow, or else you'll lose your data. And I looked at it being like, I don't want to lose all my progress. And that that was exactly that effect going off. I was like, I don't want to lose this. Um. And it's just playing into that. And I thought about it. I thought about it for a while. I thought to myself, you know, why is it being deleted straight away? Why is it being deleted in one day? Because I just wanted to see what it was. Was it a much, much bigger system? Um, but it's funny, isn't it, that when we place that kind of importance for it and promotions are another big area that I'd like to discuss as well around, you know, offering different promotions for users, maybe super users and maybe doing different referrals. What's the kind of a behavioral, behavioral science aspect around referral programs yeah so i mean having you know having special uh promos for special people uh, that talks you know a little bit goes back to the idea of exclusivity like you know we're mm -hmm. offering this to you which is good um influencers that touches on the idea of, of social proof you know people have a tendency to look to others particularly other people like them but also to people that they like so it's, maybe it's someone who's like me or maybe it's someone who i like uh, mm -hmm. and, and so I'll follow their lead. So if you can get influencers to, um, you know, to be out there referring your product, you know, uh, that there's a couple of things. One, I like the person I'm more likely to, in, to, to listen to them. And two, I think of them as, as a bit of an authority, perhaps, uh, you know, we've done, uh, we've done work for clients where maybe the client themselves wasn't particularly well known, but they talked about the customers they had and, and they use that as a way to attract new customers. It's like, maybe you hadn't heard of the company, but, you know, we're the choice for this brand name insurance company or we're the choice for this brand name financial company. And so the people in the insurance field recognize the insurance company's name. The people in the financial field recognize the financial firm's name. And as a result, they get to know the name of the provider client. And like, oh, OK, well, if they're using them, maybe I should look into them, too. So I think there are, there are a few different ways that we can um you know, we can we can leverage that. And then, uh, you know, in, in some in some cases, when we're talking about referrals, we're incenting people. And, you know, we can incent both the person who's doing the referring and the referee. And that also can be very powerful. Yeah. A big thing, actually, that um, I've used around that is, let's say, a percentage referral program. So what we do is we do 50 percent of the first month's value to the person that's referred it. So if you referred I don't know, your friend, and we started working with them, you'd receive 50% directly to you, which is huge because everyone's like, oh, you know, they're doing nothing. They already have, and I give them sample, sample emails, sample messages, and they can send them to other people to bring them inwards. And it's a great kind of inbound opportunity because it's a social proof element of the people that have worked there previously. And then there's the, the incentive for the actual person. And it's literally free money as a result. So there's kind of like that double double sides to the, to the, to the deal. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, you know, the making it easy is, is key. Like you said, it's, it's literally free money and you're supplying them the templates. Like all you have to do is send this out. And, and that's like a key component because the easier it is for someone to do something, the more likely they are to do it. And, um, and then the other side of that is the more immediate the reward, the more likely they are to do it. I, I saw some research recently where, uh, people were offered a, a much larger reward for referring someone, but they had to wait longer to get it versus getting a much smaller reward. But it was it was immediate. And, uh, you know, the researchers 
you know, constructed the experiment and they thought, I don't, people are probably going to go for the bigger reward, right? I mean, it, it was a substantially larger one. And what they found was what really won was the more immediate reward. There's there's something called, I think, present focus bias, where we prefer sooner, albeit smaller rewards versus later, but larger ones. So, you know, making a referral program easy and accessible and making the rewards more immediate are, you know, those are three really good things to do. If you have a referral program where it's going to take a while to get there, uh, you know, you, you might see that drop off because it's like, uh, I have to wait for the money. It's, it's not worth it. But if, if the payoff comes faster, people are more inclined to, uh, to participate. Yeah, I've even seen that myself. I've even seen like, it's, it's even the value of it. Let's just use whole numbers, $500. If I can receive $500 today, or if I know I'm going to even get it in two months, I'm like, less inclined in any way to do it because it's still going to come it's still coming whatever but isn't that fantastic fascinating because it's like it can only be top of mind it can only be as relevant as today because everyone's thinking uh you know survivorship bias in the short term they're not they're not extrapolating that far into the future yeah yeah we're, we're all about uh you know immediate gratification instant gratification and we mm-hmm. we discount the 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 rewards that come in the future now of course when the future comes, we're like, ah, why didn't I hold out for the more, you know, more money? Like I should have, then we kick ourselves. We're like, oh, I took the short-term reward. I should have waited. But in the moment we go for that short-term reward. That's what makes us happy. And uh, so from a marketing perspective, that could be good because it's a a less expensive um, incentive program or referral program for us. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course. One thing I want to finish up on is the authority, as you mentioned. So for individuals who do not have, let's say a personal brand or a big kind of like presence online, um, how do they gain authority for, for users and be able to kind of stamp themselves into a nice position so people can actually buy from them? So I think there, there are two ways to use the authority principle. So uh, what behavioral scientists have found is ever since we were kids, we've been taught to recognize and respect authority. So by the time we're adults, it's ingrained in us. And, and if authority says something, we usually believe it. If the authority tells us to do something, we usually do. So a marketer can do one of two things. They can go to outside experts that uh, will have a halo effect on them. So maybe they're a member of the Better Business Bureau. Maybe they're a member of the American Dental Association. Maybe they appeared on NBC News or maybe some really well-known guru in the field has endorsed them or, or um, you know, spoken favorably of them. So, you know, we, you know if, if people don't know us and uh, we're trying to convince them that we're, we're good companies to do business with, we want to pull in these outside experts because that will make people say, okay, great. And any of those, you know, any of those things can work. The other thing you can do is you can try to establish yourself as an expert or as an authority. And the way you do that, or one of the ways you do that is with the content you put out. So there's an example that, uh, that I give sometimes when I'm speaking, it's a company called Conversion Sciences, and they published a 110 point e-commerce checklist. And when you see that, you think to yourself, wow, if they've come up with a 110-point e-commerce checklist, they must know what they're talking about. They must be the authorities in this field. Uh, I think I'll, you know, I'll choose them. You know, if, if I've got a choice of three, four other companies, they're the ones that publish the 110-point e-commerce checklist. They're the ones I'm going to go with. So, if you want to turn yourself into an authority, one way to do that is by the the kind of content that you put out, the thought leadership you put out, and you know what you want to do is you want to stand apart. You don't want to do what everyone else is doing. You want to go bigger or you want to go deeper or you want to take a different angle so that people notice you and think wow they must know what they're talking about Mm. that's really interesting because there's so much people that let's say 
are kind of trying to please everybody. They're kind of like a bit of this and a bit of that. They don't really stand out as a result. They're trying to like, I suppose, buy into the best of everyone. And as a result, they end up just, just going too, drawn too wide, I suppose. So do you think kind of people should kind of focus in their personal brand to be about like, let's say one specific area, one specific product and build a narrative around that? Because there's always that kind of like, heads between what you want to do and what you want to produce versus what you should produce for your business. Yeah. I mean, it, it's tempting to try to say, Hey, look, we're for everybody. And, you know, and in some cases it, it, there may be some truth to that, that a lot of different people could use it. But as you're trying to stand out, it is helpful to, to have a, a single message and to just repeat that message, kind of double down on that message, um, you know, so that that's the thing you become known for. And then once you're known for that, maybe you can branch out, but, uh, you want to be known for that one thing so that when that when that particular topic comes up, people think, oh, that's mm-hmm. Darren Lee. I have to call Darren. Right. Or that's Nancy. I have to call Nancy Harhut. So you, you want to be known for something um, in the example with the 110 point e-commerce checklist. I think what's interesting there is there are probably a lot of other providers that did 10 things you should know, you know, or the top five things you should know or, you know, or here's a 12 point checklist. But, they, you know, they went all the way to 110 and you're like, wow, OK that's what makes them a little different. So, um, so you need to kind of find your, your area, your niche, the thing that, you know, that you're going to hang your hat on and then just be consistent with that. And and that's what you start to get known for. And, and then from there you can expand if you'd like. Mm. Yeah. There's always that, um, that kind of trade-off, I think. So people can need to focus in on a certain kind of points, but then of course, understand why you're doing it. It goes back to that kind of funny or why and understanding those kind of logic first, especially for your brand image. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that finding your why, uh, because that's what, you know, that's what your customers are going to, or your prospects are going to be wondering why them, you know? Of course. Why is it you're doing anything in the first place? And that's the first reason. That's the first question I ask you is, uh, why do you do what you do? Because it always goes back to that main area. So Nancy, I'd like to say a massive thank you, but before we finish up, can you let people know where we can find your book or your socials and everything? Absolutely. Yes. So the, the book is called, uh, using behavioral science and marketing drive customer in action. Uh, drive customer action and loyalty by prompting instinctive responses right there awesome. on the camera, <laughs> um, bright yellow cover. And you can find it uh, at the publisher, Kogan Page. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it really any place uh, great books are, are sold. You can find me on Twitter at nharhut, N-H-A-R-H-U-T. Be helpful if I could spell my name. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook. And my agency, HBT Marketing, where HBT stands for Human Behavior Triggers, HBT, and it's MKTG. We abbreviate marketing. Um, we have a lot of uh, you know great information on the site, uh, some case studies, some interviews, some articles. So if you're more interested, uh, or if you're interested in finding out more about behavioral science, that's a great place to uh, to go as well. But I, I definitely recommend picking up the book using behavioral science and marketing. 100%. And I'll have all this information down below in the show notes as always as well. So Nancy, let's say a massive thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this and I appreciate it as well. Thank you.